Hi everyone, welcome to Weird Era, a literary podcast where we ask the right questions. Today we are talking to author Lexi Freeman about their second novel, The Book of Aim. Lexi Freeman is an Australian writer and editor who graduated from Columbia's MFA program in 2012. Her first novel, Inappropriation, was longlisted for the Center for Fiction's first novel prize and the Miles Franklin Award. She also writes for television. After writing a satirical novel that the New York Times calls classist, Anna is shunned by the literary establishment and in her hurt, radicalized by the philosophy of Ayn Rand. Determined to follow Rand's theory of rational selfishness, Anna alienates herself from the scene and eventually her friends and family. Finally, in true Randian style, she abandons everyone for the boundless horizons of Los Angeles, hoping to make a TV show about her beloved muse. Things look better in Hollywood until the money starts running out, and with it, Anna's faith in the virtue of selfishness. When a death in the family sends her running back to New York and then spiraling at her mother's house, Anna is offered a different kind of opportunity, a chance to kill the ego causing her pain at a mysterious commute on the island of Lesbos. The second half of Anna's odyssey finds her exploring a very different kind of freedom, communal love, communal toilets, and a new perspective on Ayn Rand that could bring Anna back home to herself. Freeman speaks in the Book of Ain not only to a particular millennial loneliness, but also to a timeless existential predicament, the strangeness, absurdity, and hilarity of seeking meaning in the modern world. Hi, Lexi. Thanks so much for being here. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, I want to talk to you about a component of the definition of satire, which refers to, um, quote unquote, a people's stupidity and vices. Is a people's stupidity inherently a vice? Is stupidity inherently a vice? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess stupidity, well, I mean, I think this is so complicated because yeah. even ignorance is, um, you know, can be, can be a virtue or can be um, a, an opportunity, especially spiritually, um, and sorry to dive right into the spiritual aspect of the book, but um, I think in a way I couldn't have written about Ayn Rand if I hadn't from the beginning had questions about um, bigger bigger philosophical questions about spirituality. So it's always in my mind when I talk about this book. And, yeah, I think ignorance uh, can be really useful. I think it depends on how it's used. Um, and I guess stupidity, stupidity seems to imply a decision made um, almost with some consciousness of ignorance. Like, mm-hmm. is that the difference between ignorance? Ignorance seems almost like an innocent state, mm-hmm. whereas stupidity seems sort of more willfully, um, like, yeah, like it's sort of tied to a willfulness Um a kind of stubbornness or something. And Mm -hmm. I suppose I think that probably comes from a place that is uh, generally going to be obfuscating or or obstructive or or destructive. So, yeah, I think stupidity is not good, but I would say ignorance 
um, opens up many possibilities. <laughs> but I also see how ignorance is um, uh, a nightmare. <laughs> so we can elaborate on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, do you think stupidity is a choice? Because it seems to me ignorance yeah. isn't. Right. No. Well, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And uh, again, what is what is choice? <laughs> um, right. Like, does, do any of us have choice? We think we have choice and then we realize that we're driven by all kinds of subterranean, um, you know, impulses. And uh, so uh, is, I, I guess, I guess in terms of a definition, I'd say stupidity probably um, there's an aspect of choice that maybe makes it different from ignorance. I ask that because I feel like Anna, your narrator, that's definitely how she like perceives the rest of the world. She sort of sees, she's quite critical. Um, and I think she thinks that stupidity is a choice. Would you agree about Anna in the very least? We can't answer, you know, such a broad question. Definitely, definitely. I think um, I think that's part of her flaw as a character um, that she sees others as, yeah, willfully ignorant, naive, um, uh, yeah, stupid, or um, yeah, people who have sort of um, trapped themselves in a limited way of thinking. I'd say, but, but I think through the course of the novel, there's things, you know, she is opened up to other possibilities that I think kind of undermine her superiority. You know, at the start of this conversation, you sort of identified as, as someone who has a lot of opinions. Uh, I very much relate to that. Um, Anna seems to be the same. I'm not saying the three of us are the same in any way, myself <laughs> or Anna, but we do seem to share at least that um, component. Um, so I guess I'm wondering how to translate all of your opinions into a novel or why it comes and manifests in that form, or if that's even what's happening uh, as you work with fiction. Sorry, if my opinions are are kind of in the novel or that's how I sort of compose a novel. If that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, not to, not to conflate you with your character. It is fiction. <laughs> I fully understand, but you know, yeah. fiction often serves for writers as a way of like working out their own thoughts and the questions that they have. In yeah, the absolutely. So, right. Right. Yes. So. Yes. I mean, definitely. I think, um, you know, I write many drafts and some drafts are uglier than others. And I don't just mean the prose, I mean the ideas. <laughs> and I give myself permission to um, write really ugly ideas sometimes and move through them. And it's, it's, a, it's a way of thinking through problems for sure. Um, and, you know, it helps me understand obviously my own thoughts and feelings about things, but, but often other people's thoughts. So I kind of, um, you know, come through, you know, what, what might be considered very, very conservative or very kind of right wing or, um, you know, those sorts of thoughts and, and move, you know, through them to, to some other side. And also, also thoughts that have, that are, 
much more progressive and um and in the end I think the effect is kind of having more sympathy for both sides uh of an argument which I think keeps me sane and is a good practice <laughs> but um yeah on the way there sometimes I have days where I look at the world in a in a pretty critical or um vicious way and it's not always pleasant or I'm probably not always pleasant to be around but yes there's there's lots of um yeah it's a fun thing I think comedians get to do this as well I mean I talk a lot in the book about comedy and I think in a way I feel very protective of of comedy and comedians and and the like the sacred almost need or right that they have to work through ideas that are really unpopular or um or problematic or whatever I think it's like in a sense I think in a novel you know it's it's a good place to think through things and give yourself and give yourself and the reader who is thinking with you the kind of space to have all the thoughts and um and I think with comedy it's really similar and it's also cathartic in a in a slightly different way so yes I think a lot of my opinions kind of move through the book but they change and obviously they become shaped by the needs of the text needs the needs of the character and what needs to happen to the character and the other way the way that the other um characters in the book are acting on the protagonist so in the end you know uh it's all in service of a story um i don't know how much of my actual opinions are left intact but um but i think it's okay that that you know i don't i don't have any sort of like opinions that feel concrete and i mm-hmm. think that's mm-hmm. good <laughs> i think i'm i'm happy with that 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 yeah i'm happy with that as well um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. and it, it's interesting that you bring up humor i mean this book is so hilarious i was I was laughing so much throughout. It's a monumental observation on humor, in my opinion. And it, it sort of made me want to ask or ask you, what, what's the last funny thing that happened to you? <laughs> uh, the last funny thing. Well, I've been visiting my grandmother a lot in hospital. Uh, and she, you know, like there's some, there's some funny things about illness. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> no, there is. I know. <laughs> um, and yeah, you know, just all the, the bodily function type things. And now I feel, now I feel like I, I can't expose her. And so I, yeah, I'm, I I'm stepping this right back, <laughs> but, um, you know, just, just some things, just some very humbling things I've been exposed to in the last sort of, uh, week or so with her and just like, her sense of humor about that mm-hmm. stuff is just like amazing to me. And I come from, my dad is a gastroenterologist. So those sorts of jokes have always been um, a big part of my family um, lore. And uh, like my dad used to play us uh, colonoscopies, like he, you know, had the videos and he used to play them at dinner. I've actually heard <laughs> recently somebody else said their dad who was a gastroenterologist used to do that as well. Um, so I feel like it's just a thing that 
I don't know. I feel like if you go into gastroenterology, you probably have a pretty good sense of humor or you develop one or something. Anyway, so my dad used to play those while we, while we ate dinner, which I think I found reasonably funny. Or maybe I found the fact that it was like torturous to my mother funny, which is mm -hmm. a whole other kind of humor, mm -hmm. um, a very sadistic kind of humor, which maybe you could accuse me of having as well. Um, I just thought of something which uh, that goes back to what we were saying about stupidity. I just read in, I'm just reading Angela Carter's um, book, uh, The Sadian Woman. Mm -hmm. um, she talks about stupidity. Um, she talks about, sorry, the closed system of, of satire in a sense mm -hmm. that you have to find culture or society stupid. Like it's sort of, in a sense, it's part of the limitation of satire and she sort of compares it to pornography and the sort of closed system of, of meaning in pornography, but I won't get into that. That'll be the next book. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I think in a way as a satirist, unfortunately in some ways you have to have not, not disdain for, your, <laughs> for the culture, but there's a little bit of that spirit of, um, you know, uh, yeah, kind of not not a moral su superiority, but but a sort of um, kind of yeah. There's a little bit of that, I guess. But but I think I think you know the 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 project is really finding your way through that attitude towards something a bit more human, or or you know something a little more merciful, mm -hmm. which I think yeah is a big um, topic. <laughs> I mean, I think that's why fart jokes are funny. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> they, that's exactly right. Uh, they sort of, they're a great leveler. And, yeah. Um, yeah. I think they will endure through all of, all of time, all of history, which is probably only 20 years. <laughs> but anyway, um, now you know what I think about that. You have to laugh either way, even if you're not kidding. Yeah, next I want to write a hilarious climate change book. I've been waiting. It's just like all about the world, the world ending, but but I just want it to be really funny. <laughs> if there's someone you can do that, I truly believe you're up for the task. Um, there's this thread throughout the book, you know, speaking of shit, there's this thread throughout <laughs> the book that revolves uh, an un unflushed poo yeah <laughs> and yeah. Anna finds herself having to deal with this from a roommate and is personally affronted by it and then somehow we reinterprets it from a Randian perspective uh she says no it was my responsibility to handle any negative emotion I felt toward the material conditions of my own life it was my choice to endow him with evil intentions with the malicious desire to inflict suffering on me despite the obvious obliviousness of his actions I had to treat his turds like an unconscious accident, like the unforeseen outcome of a major pollutant or of globalization, like the world was a happy and innocent place. This to me, although about a turd, which is why it's amazing, why it's an amazing contemplation, reads like a spectacular way of sort of saying, this has nothing to do with me, intentions matter here. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's exploring, I mean, it's sort of making light of that idea that I think um, we all struggle with, especially in relation to climate change um, or, you know, 
uh, the way the way we are responsible for um, for the world, the, the planet warming, or you know, but even um, just just any kind of any kind of uh, global or, or any even injustice, social injustice. There's you know, there's this sense of um, like if I don't know about the like, how can I be blamed for a thing that I can't even foresee or that I, that I don't know that I am doing um, and that is uh, going to have like a, a really adverse effect on, um, on people I don't know or generations to come or just that sort of ethical dilemma um, that I think I think some people really struggle with and then other people <laughs> really don't struggle with or dismiss out of hand. Um, and again, it all ties back to this idea of uh, personal responsibility. Do we take responsibility for ourselves? And is that in a sense, when we, when we, <laughs> when we take responsibility for ourselves, but not for others, are we giving someone else the opportunity to have more agency than we would otherwise be giving them if we took responsibility for their, for their problems. I think that's at the heart of everything Ayn Rand talks about, this idea mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. there is great freedom in responsibility and when you take that responsibility away from people, you take away their freedom. So, and of course this gets really sticky when you are talking about people who are suffering and don't have the same resources and if there really is some concrete action you can take to help someone and make their life better um you know I don't want to get into sort of too much about my purse you know my politics or whatever but um yeah I think I think these are really really interesting questions um and I feel like the left in particular is really struggling with them or I don't know how even yeah, sometimes I don't hear much. I feel like I don't hear this this discussion. Um, I think it's a bit taboo, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is a shame because I, I, I mean, even earlier you said sometimes you're writing, you go there, you go to the the ugly parts. Um, and I don't know if you can get somewhere productive if you refuse to go to the ugly parts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it's sort um, of dangerous. I mean, it feels, you know, I think writers always go to the ugly places, often emotionally or, um, you know, I think that struggle is, is always there. But I think, you know, in the last 10 years, going there um, just in the realm of, like, ugly ideas, I feel is not has not been something I've seen much of, at mm -hmm. least in the U S mm -hmm. there's, there's French writers who I love who go there <laughs> and there's German writers and there's, but I feel that in the U S the pol the political situation is so explosive that, um, I think it's really deterred satirists from going there. The people who, yeah, I don't know. I can't think of, I mean, there's a few people who really go there, Paul Beatty, and but um, there's not many. <laughs> and I think 
I get it. It's, um, it's scary, you know, to think that you could be destroyed because you use the wrong word in a, in, you know, um, in your book and, uh, and that's the end of your career. It's just not really worth doing, but I actually don't think that's, I think all that stuff has calmed down now. I kind of Mm -hmm. think we're Mm -hmm. coming out the other side, although we may be entering another little dip, um, you know, just with what's going on in the world right now. Um, but yeah, I I feel like it's started to move away from that really, um, yeah, just, just merciless place that cancel culture got to. Mm -hmm. Um, from the very early pages of the novel, our problematic narrator wonders, why should empathy only work when you recognize that someone had been hurt, like you'd been hurt? Wasn't that sort of more about you, she, uh, she muses. Uh, sympathy is defined more so in the context of a mutual feeling. Empathy is defined rather as an understanding. Um, but would you say most things inherently involve the feelings felt by oneself? <laughs> like, it, it yeah. always has to come back to what you know and what you felt, of even course. when you're trying to apply it to someone else, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm asking if you agree with your narrator's take in this instance. <laughs> um, I think in in this context, I think uh, this is a moment that's a little bit of a, maybe more of a character moment than, mm-hmm. you know, I think in some ways some of the um, writing, the moments could be broken down into kind of character moments where, you know, you're sort of showing a kind of um, a character who's not necessarily thinking as rationally or as um, what I want to show there is more um, a kind of antagonism in her rather than a clearly thought out and sort of um, um, airtight argument (laughs) Mm because I think that that's part of the character that, you know, there's a reactivity there and there's a, um, yeah, there's a tendency to see, to see threat. Um, and, and I think that's a moment of, that's a sort of blinkered moment in, in the narrative where, yeah, you know, of course everything is always sort of all about us. Um, but because she's so, obsessed with this idea that she's been labeled a narcissist she's kind of deflecting that back at the world uh, or projecting it back at the world so um but yeah but I but I still think it's an interesting idea even in its hypocrisy like even in the character's hypocrisy there where yeah everything is sort of always about us in a way our empathy is kind of um something that we at some level um, are feeling for ourselves. And that's, that's kind of a, I think that's a really interesting, um, phenomenon. And I think it go it gets at the heart of this idea of selfishness versus altruism and mm-hmm. like, what is the authentic human response and are there good or bad people? How much of, you know, what is a genuine altruism? Right. How much is this stuff always just ego? And there's no answer to that, you know. Right. Yeah. 
Similarly, on the next page, she reflects, being wrong didn't worry me. It was more embarrassing to be the same. Mm. Why aren't more people more embarrassed to be the same? (laughs) Well, I don't know. I don't think more people, I think uh, artists or, you know, whatever. when I say artists, I mean, you know, writers, artists, um, visual artists, uh, you know, the the broad spectrum of people who – who kind of devote a significant part of their lives to creating things. I think those people don't want to be the same, but in some ways they do want to be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think most people, I think most people want to be the same as others. And then I think artists don't want to be the same in many ways. And to me, this is the contradiction that the novel explores as well. This idea that artists you know, they want to have the right politics. They want to be accepted by the group in terms of their, their thinking that, that is like right thinking. But then there's also this inherent quality, I think, in, in most artists that is about being an individual and being, mm-hmm. in a sense, um, outside the crowd and looking in and there's this, there's this kind of alienation and there's, there's a contrarianism. There's, you know, all of these qualities that, that are part of the creative spirit or the artistic spirit um, that I think undermine that idea of sameness. And I think there's a part of the artistic soul that rejects sameness outright and it's bigger than, or it's, it's, um, it transgresses morality. It's not really about morality anymore. It's just about the self so I feel like inside inside every artist and, and limiting limiting it to artists is is not not necessarily the project. I think there's a certain kind of personality. I think it's inherent in everybody at a different moment in their lives. Mm-hmm. It's part of this feeling of individualism or individuality that that I think makes you want to rise up above the crowd in those moments, you know, where something in your soul cries out to be larger than or whatever, you know, that is, um, then yeah, you don't want to be the same. So I think that tension between wanting to be accepted and wanting to stand out, rise above all of that. I think that's a huge, um, obviously it's a, it's a part of being a human being, but I think it's a huge tension in artists in particular, which was something I wanted to explore in the book because, you know, what's interesting to me always in, in satire, in the satire that I write is exposing some of the hypocrisies, particularly on the left, because that's where I see myself. That's where the culture is. Um, and, and I think a lot of artists obviously are progressives, but there's this tension in all of us that is, kind of torn between wanting to be different and an individual and then wanting to have the same right, good opinions as everyone else. Love that answer. Um, thank you for that. Um, on, on page 78, Anna says, Anna observes Rand as an intellectual top and a sexual bottom. Could you elaborate here? <laughs> um an intellectual top and a sexual <laughs> bottom. Um, well, you know, I guess to me, like I read a lot of Ayn Rand biographies. Um, you know, I started out thinking she was 
kind of interesting because everyone hated her. I'm always drawn to those people. Um, and then the more I read about her, the more I thought she was just hilarious and, um, and, and, and I, you know, gave intentionally myself. Intentionally hilarious? Intentionally? Oh, no. I think she was pretty humorless. <laughs> Um, she's just a hilarious character. Um, like, I don't know, people like that just don't, oh, they do exist. They do exist. Um, I don't encounter them very much, Mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, I think, you know, her, she, there was no, um, willingness or openness to other people's ideas. (laughs) So, um, I guess in this, in the purely sexual sense of being a top, she was not receptive. Um, she, her ideas were the dominant. <laughs> she was just, you know, um, you had to believe or you had to agree with everything she said. She was incredibly dogmatic. Like she literally didn't read other philosophers. The mm-hmm. only person she, she'd only ever read Aristotle and some of Nietzsche and she'd eventually rejected Nietzsche. So she really thought she was the only philosopher um, worth reading and maybe a bit of Aristotle. But um, so, yeah, and, I mean, she was she was ruthless. She didn't, you know, if you tried to defy her. I mean, she argued, um, but if you, yeah, she, she just had no time for anybody who, who disagreed with her and, and um, no interest. And then as a sexual bottom, um, I gave myself some license here to imagine what Ayn Rand would have been like in bed because obviously we don't really know. But based on some of her, you know, the character descriptions um, or the the sort of scenes that you kind of get almost but in an elliptical way in her novels, mm-hmm. um, are very much um, the woman as passive and um, kind of, uh, you know, these women who are pretty strong and, 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 and ruthless when it comes to sex, they're very um, sort of submissive and, and passive. And there's a lot of references to like um, necks and like the fragility of necks and chokers. And so I just decided she liked strangulation, which is not, you know, this is a fictional um, it's not even a fictional biography. It's yeah. It, I gave myself a lot of license with that stuff, but I really do think that for a woman like that, and she said, this was another thing that I thought was really interesting. She said that, um, a woman could never be president of the United States because there would be no man powerful enough for her to marry. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, <laughs> because I guess she, she sort of, yeah, the, the United States to her was the most powerful country. So, so, um, in a sense, she had very old school values around, I think the gender roles. And even if you were a strong woman, like she was, I think she wanted the roles to be pretty, um, pretty well defined when it came to things that were gendered, like, I think she did the cooking and she, from what I, from what I gather from her female characters, um, was, was not dominant in bed. So this is, that's, that's my so this is, you're, you're, it's, it's true. I get it. And it's, it's observation you've made about Rand, but like, 
to me, this is also just such a, you know, outside of a Randian sort of observation. Um, this is a, a common thread, I think, personally, in my uh, social female circle and like contemporary yeah. feminist sexual conversations. And it's always sort of this this uh, almost opposition of this highly intellectually heightened confidence woman who ultimately just wants to be subjugated sexually. And mm. I can I can recount this from literal personal experiences of friends or from the books that I have other otherwise read, um, especially when it comes to contemporary sex writing. Or rather, maybe not the subjugation of sexuality, but what you call on page 193 is the sublime sense of degradation. And I've always wondered what it is that creates a sort of, that is at the root of this opposition. Why it is that women who, the quote unquote, wokest women are the most drawn to the sublime sense of sexual degradation. Oh my God. I, don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm obviously so interested in this as well. Um, I mean, I think often, you know, if, if we just talk in terms of like sadomasochism, mm -hmm. I think often, you know, there's a masochistic desire to, for surrender. I think if, if you're talking about, you know, being a strong woman, in a sense, there's, it takes enormous energy um, to, you know, uh, be, um, in a sense, to, to kind of like, well, not enormous energy, it's also energy giving, but, you know, mm -hmm. to, to, to sort of um, express those qualities in yourself that, that we all have, which might be termed more masculine qualities, um, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, to to be someone who, um, I don't know, has has a kind of uh, a willfulness and a sort of um, who who kind of moves through the world in a way that is that is um, more dominant. That is, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think I think that then there's like a there's a desire in all of us for surrender and for release and in a sense a kind of um yeah sort of uh uh like respite <laughs> from from that way of being which i think is i think you you get that in a masochistic sexual experience where um you get to surrender your will to the sort of dominant will of the, the, you know, um, the, the sadistic or dominant part. Sadism is not necessarily part of this, just dominant, you know, partner and, um, and it's role play. So it's safe and it's not like, um, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything, but it's sort of, yeah, I find, well, I mean, we're not necessarily talking about, um, we're not necessarily talking about BDSM. I've just gone there cause I'm reading this book, but I think the healthy, the healthy version of that would be a very conscious sort of like, um, a, a conscious move towards like letting that, letting that energy go into, in, in a sort of, you know, um, 
submissive or whatever, that kind of sense. But I think you're right. I think more often um, my experience or my, you know, hearing, talking to to the women I know and, yeah, reading about it is that the, the, these, exper- these sexual experiences are not very satisfying or they're sort of they are not very conscious that, mm-hmm. that we end up sort of in situations that we didn't realise we that, that where we didn't sort of realize we were in a sense um going to feel kind of powerless and and I think that's where so much of this confusion comes in also for women and this is like a me too conversation <laughs> that is that is um potentially problem problematic but um Welcome yeah, I think room. there's I think there's a whole spectrum of obviously a whole spectrum of like sort of um, female sexual experience that is um, and the spectrum you know goes from the, the the most horrific experiences to these experiences that feel confusing because there's a sense of powerlessness but it's hard to communicate you know some of the nuances of that. Um, but yeah, there's, there's something in us that might be cultural. That's part of this desire to not have to push so hard, which we do, um, in, in the kind of, um, in the world of social relations, sometimes we have to like push harder than men and then wanting some of that like release in sex and then I think that isn't always satisfied or it's not, you know, trying to communicate this incredibly complex thing is so hard Mm -hmm. and, um, and so there's a lot of confusion I think that comes up. I think I've answered 12 questions that you didn't ask (laughs) in that answer but hopefully there's something of worth in there. There is, I promise you. Um, (laughs) Why bring Anna to Greece? Oh, um, because because I wanted to explore the other side of all of this um, sort of self uh, rational selfishness, and to me that seemed to be um, you know ego death or or egolessness and. Um, so I wanted her to go to a spiritual kind of commune. Um, and I have had a similar experience with a similar place, but mm-hmm. um, it's the, the place in the book is, is fictionalized. But um, so I wanted her to be, and also in a sense to get her out of America and away from Americans, <laughs> because I feel like, for the first half of the book, there's a lot of culture war stuff. And, um, and that was fun. And, um, and then in the second half of the book, I think that's obviously still there in a way it's sort of, um, there's a little bit of it. And it's also just, you know, uh, it simmers somewhere under the surface, but I think to get her away from that world and, um, and the sort of, I don't know, the, in, the, the, you know, to get her out of the weeds of that world and into a place where the ideas are a little bit more philosophical and expansive and, um, 
Yeah, and to put her around a whole bunch of funny Europeans. <laughs> uh, well, there's yeah. a character of a younger man, boy, man, boy. Um, he's a boy, but he's introduced towards <laughs> the end of the book and, it, you know, when she is in Greece. Um, and his quintessential characteristics are young boy and un-American. Uh, mm-hmm. And you write him hilariously, essentially, essentially, I think, you know, sort of mocking him or satirizing. Um, yet, as someone who comes from a foreign background myself, it somehow still seemed to honor the character type. It's it's sort of my observation as well, especially like, I'll personalize it for you. You know, I, I come from a Bengali background, going back home to Bangladesh and like seeing the sort of exaggeration exaggeration of, of an ethnic character firsthand while simultaneously coming from that. So particularly being, being able to see that difference. But having read this character, and again, I because of this background of mine, I did feel that you honored the character type while simultaneously creating a really laughable character. Um, he is so quintessentially young, male, and un-American. And I wonder what does youth and un-Americanness bring to Anna besides horniness? <laughs> um, um, that might be it. Um, <laughs> youth, I mean... I guess to break it down, youth uh, is a big thing for this character because she's pushing 40 and um, is very aware of that as a single childless woman. Um, So I think she's acting out a lot of her anxiety around aging and, um, and there's, you know, a sense of, a sense of possibility. I think that she sees in the younger, younger boy, um, you know, someone who in a way he also has a sort of intellectual openness that she really um, appreciates or, or that, you know, um, really kind of activates her own and um, in a sense makes her feel better about, um, you know, what she's sort of been condemned for thinking in the U.S., so there's there's that which is not just a I mean it's a youth it's a youthful thing and, and that's also part of the non-American thing. Um, so I think those things uh, and also you know and this was this kind of ties into where she is a bit like Ayn Rand because I think Ayn had a real um, uh, soft spot for young men. And mm-hmm. she she had very ambiguous relationships with some of her younger sort of students, and um, and you know there were men who came and stayed in the house with her and her husband, who was sort of always off like picking flowers in the garden. He's this strange man. I'm not really sure what was going on in their marriage, but um, so and then she obviously had this like uh, years long affair with a twenty with a man who was 25 years younger than her. So I think. She had a, um, you know, there was a part of her, in a sense, it was a power thing, I think, that as you get older as a woman, there's a real, um, there's a real difference in the way that older women are treated as sexual beings as they age as opposed to men. And so I think, you know, part of that um, frustration that Ayn would have experienced as, as someone who was losing her power, even though she's not someone who necessarily used her sexuality much, um, as a, as a woman, um, she would have been aware of 
you know, how it is to be a young um, kind of uh, dynamic uh, foreign woman in the U.S. who, uh, you know, intriguing, mysterious kind of foreign woman who then, you know, as she becomes older, that sort of the, the, the way she's described as sort of matronly and, you know, all these negative kind of um, right. associations come in and, and I think you lose that sense of power, which is, again, complicated. Um, female sexual power is <laughs> it's another, like, um, difficult thing to talk about. Uh, she knew the world's ending in 20 years because like, I would really I know there's a lot to talk about <laughs> <laughs> but um yes so I think I think this character also feels that she's losing some of her um powers as a woman as she's getting older and and there's a dynamic between a younger man and an older woman where the power you know there's an interesting power balance there because there's all this worldly experience that the woman has. And then, you know, the young man has, you know, the youth and beauty and virility or whatever of, of a young man. And, and so I think it's, again, it's like another sort of way of um, getting power or balancing your, your own power with someone else's and everything I think for this character through the lens of Ayn Rand is, is pretty transactional Mm -hmm. um, not purely transactional. And what was the last quality of the boy? Boy, uh, un-Americanness, youth. But ultimately, it brings it does bring to her kind of horniness. Yes. <laughs> I guess I mean, the horniness is explained in terms of what you're addressing about, like the age difference and, and youth. Yeah. Than... Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where that comes from. I um, feel like she also was just. Attra like sexually attracted and stimulated to encounter values that are so contradictory to her Western experience, you know? Yeah. And that's, yeah. Said, that's why you brought her to Greece. So she could step away from that. Definitely. I think there's, there's something always attractive in the mystery and the sort of beguiling nature of, of, um, someone you don't understand or you don't you can't see clearly um you know the illusion of of the other and the illusion of the sort of like what the sort of like the mystery of the other because ultimately you know what we all learn is that there's there's no real mystery we're all the same it's not like but you can you can delude yourself longer with someone who maybe doesn't have the same language skills as you. Um, and personally, I've had a lot of experience with this because I have spent a bit of time in Europe and, um, and it's a tricky thing, this like having relationships with people whose first language is not English. And you think for a while that in a sense you have the upper hand, but then I don't know, I think it's like a really, it's a difficult thing because personally I find that I can hide behind my humor in a way that actually makes me less like in a sense, that's at least my instinct is to hide behind humor. But then I find that the people I'm talking to are often in a more powerful position ultimately because they can't hide in language as well as me. And so mm -hmm. 
they're more exposed, but actually at the end of the day, I think that's a more powerful position to be in, you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. we think that, that obfuscating is, but ultimately, yeah, you kind of, you can't really, you can't really regret putting your heart out there mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah. So anyway, I think that's a, it's a good complicated dynamic, um, especially for someone like this character who doesn't, who struggles with intimacy. It doesn't come, it doesn't come naturally or easily. Was it intentional that you made Anna a Pisces? <laughs> Wait, I totally forgot she was a Pisces. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know very much about star signs. Um, okay. Why? What, what, I mean, I know that Pisceans are like generally sort of sensitive and artistic mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. also, like maybe a bit mad. Is that yeah? <laughs> is that right? They've got like a deep interior interior. Yeah, it could have easily just been you know uh, something you just like included in. It's fiction, no problem. But some authors I have spoken to them, especially these days, they do make these choices sort of intentionally. So I just wonder. Uh, well, you know, she does read the Pisces for what it's worth. I mean, I'm a Pisces, <laughs> so <laughs> that might have something to do with it. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't remember thinking too much about it, but I, I might have, I just, um, you know, it's funny, you know, it's, I'm sure, uh, most writers say this to you, but you know, you write a book and then you, I mean, I just forget right. so much of what is in the book. Um, and then it's like, Oh, wow. I really don't know what I was thinking. I mean, it's great. It's so nice to have you you know, having like really thought so much about the book and reading these passages. Cause it's like, Oh wow. Yes. I remember that. And it's like, got me thinking again about, about exactly what I was trying to, trying to say, but it, it's funny. It's like, I don't want to compare it to childbirth cause I don't know, women who've had babies will get mad at me, but you know, it's that thing of it's like forgetting, just forget. <laughs> yeah. Just forget all the, the horror that, that came before the book was published. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit like that. I think, I don't know, but yes, I now remember the conversation where she is exposed as a Pisces to that Italian, um, guy on the beach. Is that right? So many Italians yeah. on the beach. It's really hard to keep track of, um, which one, which one from which bit of the book. I don't even remember which one. I just, yeah, I, just like to, I like to, you know, ask um yeah yeah I guess my last question is you know typically not light um if and as you write at some point in the book uh and or Anna wonders if a book is better than a person as reflected in the last few pages of the book are its characters better than existing people um like is Anna Anna's obviously not a role model necessarily but like Similarly, if a book is better than a person, then are its characters better than existing people? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I don't think, I guess. um... Is it possible that the book is a role model, but maybe Anna isn't? Well, I guess I think of a book as as kind of like what I said a bit at the beginning. It's like a thinking through of things that, that we are all capable of doing and we all do or... I'd like to think we all do at some point, 
even if it takes many years or, you know, I guess we don't always see the results of that thinking through in another person. Mm-hmm. Those moments are probably really private and they happen, you know, when someone is touched by something and they have a thought, you know, you can be furious about something that's happened and you can feel like you would never be able to forgive or, and then you might just have a moment where you see someone who looks like that person you hate with all your heart and you see them bend over and wince in pain from who knows what. And there's a part of you that remembers that that person you hate, you know, suffers. And just those tiny moments that kind of make up a whole life. And I don't think, and in a sense, I think a book is a distillation of those things. You know, Mm -hmm. that's what I hope a book or I hope I, you know, this book and, and hopefully the, the other books I, I write, you know, will be these distillations of, um, of all the moments I think we all have. And in a sense, it, they're not better than us, but they, they capture more, they capture the, the full spectrum of us. And, and in a sense, that gives you more freedom to say all the bad things and then have the moments of redemption. And I think, yeah, I think that's what most people's lives um, are comprised of is that combination, which we don't see, you know, we all live that pretty privately. And, um, and yeah, I don't know. It's impossible to do an accounting of (laughs) how much bad and how much good there is in a life or in a book, I mean, in a book you can do it. And I think as, I think writers do do it. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think in a sense, for me at least, writing a book is a little bit of an exercise in not just thinking through things, but finding some mercy, some like sense of peace around the complexities of, being a thinking, feeling, being in the world. Yeah. Thank you. Um, This was wonderful. Uh, Thank you so much for your time, for those generous answers. Uh, Listeners, you can pick up a copy of uh, the Book of of Rain, rather, at your local indie bookseller. Thank you, Lexi. Thank you so much. Thank you.